Shalom. This is Rabbi Tama Davis Hart from Beth Elohim Messianic Synagogue bringing a commentary on Parashin number 26. This is Shmini the 8th. So this week we examine the finality of the anointing and consecration process for Aharon and his sons and the algorithm for presenting offerings to Adonai that would set the proper environment for the presence of God in the sanctuary. We are also formally introduced to the dietary laws that are as much in effect today as they were when God mandated them. The reason I stipulate a formal presentation of the dietary laws in that Noah knew, Noah knew the difference between clean and unclean animals before the laws were actually presented to the nation of Israel. A teaching on the dietary laws deserves more time than can be taken in today's focus. However, a detailed teaching on the dietary laws and the reason for them is presented in Parashah number 26 teaching from 2022 and can be found on our website at rabdavis.org. I encourage the reader to look into this passage for additional knowledge regarding God's Torah and the consistency in all things God declares as holy throughout his Torah that true believers must learn and follow out of love if we hope to be found good and faithful servants of our Lord and Messiah, Yahweh Yeshua. All the people whose hearts moved them contributed according to their skills and talents in constructing what was to become a visible home for God's presence on earth. Their hearts were so full of love for God that Moshe had to constrain them from giving more. Wow. In stark contrast to this scenario where God's glory appeared to the people, just after Aharon had blessed the people, our attention is drawn to shocking contrast in events. Quote, But Nadav and Avihu, sons of Aharon, each took their censer, put fire in it, laid incense on it, and offered unauthorized fire before Adonai, something he had not ordered them to do. At this, fire came forth from the presence of Adonai and consumed them, so that they died in the presence of Adonai. Moshe said to Aharon, This is what Adonai said, Through those who are near me, I will be consecrated, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aharon kept silent. Celebration had turned to tragedy. The two eldest sons of Aharon die instantly at the hand of God. Note that there were witnesses to this event, whereby God was glorified before all the people. The sages and commentators offer many explanations, including the following. Nadav and Ahihu died because they entered the Holy of Holies. They were not wearing the requisite clothing. They took fire from the kitchen, not the altar. They did not consult Moshe and Aharon, nor did they consult with one another. According to some, they were guilty of being drunk. They were impatient to assume leadership roles themselves, and they did not marry, considering themselves above such things. Yet others see their deaths as delayed punishment for an earlier sin, when at Mount Sinai they, quote, and unquote, ate and drank in the presence of God. Now, these interpretations represent close readings of the four places in the Torah, which Nadav and Avihu's death is mentioned, as well as the reference to their presence on Mount Sinai. Each is a profound meditation on the dangers of over-enthusiasm in the religious life. This is what we see in the charismatic movement in Christianity today. Everybody wants to feel good. Everybody wants the music. Everybody wants to be, quote-unquote, slain in the spirit. These are not of God. This is soulish behavior and not godly behavior. Overzealousness is not what God 
has commanded us to do. The simplest explanation for Nadav and Avihu is in the Torah itself. Nadav and Avihu died because they offered unauthorized, that means strange, fire, meaning, quote, that which was not commanded, unquote. To understand the significance of this, we must go back to the first principles, covenant and conversation, Jeruma, and remind ourselves of the meaning of Kadosh, which means holy, and thus of Mikdash, as the home of the holy. The holy is that segment of time and space God has reserved for his presence. Creation involves concealment. The word Olam, universe, is semantically linked to the word Ne'elam, hidden. To give mankind some of his own creative powers, the use of language to think, communicate, understand, imagine alternative futures and choose between them, God necessarily had to do more than create humans. He withdrew part of himself to make room for, quote, unquote, the other, that is, for humanity. In Kabbalah, this is called simsum, to create a space for human action. No single act more profoundly indicates the love and mercy implicit in creation. God, as we encounter him in the Torah, is like a parent who knows he must hold back, let go, refrain from intervening, and even let them go through hardships and hurt so they may become responsible and mature. But there is a limit. To withdraw himself entirely would be equivalent to abandoning the world, deserting his own children. God promises that he will never leave those who love him and follow his commands. So how does he leave a presence on earth? The biblical answer is not philosophical, as promoted by Plato and Descartes, as one that applies universally, that is, at all times and in all places. But there's no answer that applies to all times and all places. That's why philosophy cannot and never will understand the apparent contradiction between divine creation and human free will, or between divine presence and the empirical world in which we reflect, choose, and act. Jewish thought is counter-philosophical. It insists that truth are embodied precisely in particular times and places. There are holy times, the seventh day, the seventh month, the seventh year, and the end of the seven septennial cycles, the Jubilee year. There are holy people, the children of Israel as a whole, within them the Levayim, and within them the Kohanim. And there is a holy space, eventually. Israel within that, Jerusalem within that, the temple, in the desert where they were, had the Mishkan, the holy and the holy of holies. The holy is that point of time and space in which the presence of God is encountered by Tzimtzum, self-renunciation on the part of mankind. Just as God makes space for man by an act of self-limitation, so man makes space for God by an act of self-limitation. We must withdraw our human egos or suppress our human egos or overcome our human egos in order to learn and live a Torah nature, a nature that's holy. Just as God makes space for man by this act of self-limitation, so are we to do. This is illustrated with the narrative of Jacob's Ladder, where we learn through examination of all that is going on in the narrative that just as the angels are ascending and descending, we must descend in self in order to ascend in our relationship 
to God. This is necessarily done through Yeshua as the way, the truth, and the life. The sides supports on the ladder. Our lives, the trials and tribulations we endure, are the horizontal rungs. In Kabbalah, we learn that our goal is to learn how to receive the light, capital L, in order to reflect it back into the world that we may glorify God, rather than trying to hoard it ourselves. Through this learning process and applying it to our lives, we have opportunities to climb the ladder and ascend in our relationship to God. The holy is where God is experienced as absolute presence. Not accidentally, but essentially. This can only take place through the total renunciation of human will and initiative. That's not because God does not value human will and initiative. On the contrary, he has empowered mankind to use them to become his, quote, partners in the work of creation, unquote, to ascend the ladder. He gives us all the instructions we need. If we would just learn them, read them, learn them, internalize them, and obey them, we'd be fine. However, to be true to God's purposes, there must be times and places in which humanity experiences the reality of the divine. Those times and places require absolute obedience. This is not a dictatorship. This is obedience out of love toward our God. There is no room for reinterpreting what we quote-unquote think God wants us to do or changing his commands for our convenience, such as the Catholic Church changing the Sabbath. The most fundamental mistake, the mistake of Nadav and Avihu, was to take powers that belong to man's encounter with the world and apply them to man's encounter with the divine. Had Nadav and Avihu used their own initiative to fight evil and injustice, they would have been heroes because they decided they could worship God, quote, unquote, their way. They used their own initiative in the arena of the holy. They asserted their own presence in the absolute presence of God. They so-called expanded themselves, so to speak, crossing a boundary that God commanded be made between man and himself. That's why they died. For those who maintain such punishment is only found in the Old Testament and that Yeshua would never do such a thing because he's all love, need only read so-called New Testament, it's more correctly translated as renewed, refreshed covenant, scripture, to realize this is not true. And I refer you to Acts 5, where the account of Ananias and Sapphira is presented in 1 Corinthians 11.30. God's holiness never changes. His commands never change. Aharon recognized this and bowed his head in humble silence as he watched God take these two boys or men. We err if we think of God as jealous in the context of our human understanding, the concept that stems from a myth spread by early Christianity in an attempt to define itself as the religion of love, superseding the cruel, harsh, uh, retributive God of the so-called Old Testament, When the Torah itself uses such language, it, quote, speaks in the language of humanity, unquote. That is to say, anthropomorphically and metaphorically, so people will understand. The Old Testament is half the love story of Yahweh Yeshua for his creation that survives even though man has repeatedly broken covenants and vows made to God. God does not break his covenants out of his love and mercy. God desires for us to encounter him because we need him. In order for us to develop and grow in a right relationship with him, 
we must understand that although he loves us beyond what we will ever be able to understand in this world, that love mandates obedience that sometimes requires us to be silent in his presence. It's not yippee yahoo, throw your skirt up and fall on the floor. It's not dancing up and down and babbling in unknown tongues. That's not even scriptural. All tongues spoken of in the Torah, in the Bible, were tongues of different languages, not some unknown language. To enter the holy space and time requires total humility. Renunciation of our efforts and desire. All of this soulish behavior is simply to be noticed. People want to be noticed. They want to have something that nobody else has. Holy Spirit talking to this person and not that person. The gospel of the kingdom is available to everyone. For example, although we may want to dance, sing, or jump up and down, there are times when this behavior is not appropriate, and that's in the presence of God. God is very clear on how we are to behave in our interactions with him and man, even more so when we are in his presence. The first four commands of the Decalogue have to do with our relationship to God, and the last six, how we are to relate to man. They're not intermingled. The significance of this fact cannot be overestimated. When we confuse God's will with our will, we turn the holy, the source of life, into something unholy and a source of death. The classic example of this is, quote-unquote, holy war. Investing imperialism, that's the desire to rule over other people, with a cloak of sanctity as if conquest and forced conversions were God's will. Just look at church history and you'll see. Christianity is full of it, as are other religions. The story of Nadav and Avihu reminds us yet again of the warning first spelled out in the days of Cain and Abel. The first act of worship led to the first murder. Like nuclear fission, worship generates power, which can be benign, but can also be profoundly dangerous. The episode of Nadav and Avihu is written in three kinds of fire. First, there is the fire from heaven, and it says fire came forth from before God and consumed the burnt offering. That's in 924. This was the fire of favor, consuming the service of the sanctuary, consummating the service of the sanctuary. Then came the unauthorized fire offered by the two sons, Aharon's Nadav and Abihu, taking their censers and doing that which God did not command them to do. Then there was the counter fire from heaven. Fire came forth from before God and it consumed them so that they died before God. This message is simply simple and is deadly serious. Let's revisit 10.3. Through those who are near me, I will be consecrated, and before all the people, I will be glorified. Aharon kept silent. He was silent. Furthermore, he was instructed not to publicly mourn. Aharon was to set the example as the Kohen or the high priest before the people. The whole house of Israel, rather, would mourn because of what had just happened. God would be glorified before all the people. No questions, no mouthiness, no arguments. In the Brit Kaddisha, we're reminded that we are to work out our salvation. Get that? Work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That's God's words. That's the Torah. That's in the Bible. That's not my words. So those who... Can, who, who condemn us and tell us that we are living under the law 
have no idea what they're talking about. No, we're living with the law, with God's law, and we're doing it because we love him. If we think we can develop a true relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by reinterpreting, paraphrasing, adding to or subtracting from God's commands, we are sorely misled and we will definitely reap what we sow. Check out Revelations 22, 18, and 19 for that. Or Haftarah. That's out of 2 Samuel. And this narrative presents another example of how serious God is about how we are to approach him and how we are to treat the holy things. This is seen where David is bringing the ark of God to the city of David. Now, according to God's command regarding the transport of the ark, in the Old Testament, by the way, it was to be carried on the shoulders of two of the Levites with the poles always in the rings attached to the ark. This is where David got in trouble. He thought the best way to move the ark was on a cart. So they got a new cart, and they set the ark on the cart, and they started to transport it, but something happened. Suddenly there's a death. What did Uzzah, who died when he touched the ark, why did he die? Why did he do to deserve death? He was trying to steady the ark on the cart. Well, Second Samuel 6, 6 says, And when they came to Nahor's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God, took hold of it, for the oxen shook it, unquote. That's all he did, right? After all, it's a natural thing to do. If it's going to drop, you got to grab it. But let me tell you, it wouldn't have ever dropped if they would have carried it the way that God commanded it be carried. What's the right way? The Levites were the ones who were supposed to carry the ark. The poles were to be put through the little ringlets at the bottom of the ark. The poles were to be placed on the shoulders of these specially chosen men, and they were to balance it as they carried it from one place to another. And David didn't do that. He took a covenant route, convenient route, and changed the details to fit the expediency of the hour. He thought he had a better idea. He thought he was going to take a shortcut, and it cost a man his life. David got really upset with God when he should have been upset with himself. David was angry with God, but God was angry with David. He contributed to the sin of Uzzah, who was a Levite, and knew better than to touch the ark, even if it was leaning. David knew the rules. Yet he decided he had a better way to transport the ark than the way God commanded. We may seek the Lord's will, and we want to circumvent God's commands in the interest of expediency or convenience, and we excuse our poor decision away, thinking it doesn't really make a difference to God because we are quote-unquote all his children. Well, God reminds us many times in the Old Testament and the Brit Kaddishah, Refreshed, Renewed Covenant, that if we really have a heart for God, and desire to have a meaningful relationship with him, we must take the time to check his Torah for guidance and not play it by ear. If we try to cut corners, it will result in hurt and possibly death, either our own or someone around us. On the surface, Uzzah did a helpful, even maybe a noble thing, but he did not do the right thing, and it cost him his life. In this strange circumstance brought about because David, the leader, wanted to do things his way, the right thing would have been to let the ark touch the earth instead of Uzzah's sinful hands. David assembled thousands of people and had glorious music played in celebration of the ark's return to Jerusalem. It would have been much better had he quietly followed the instructions and done it right. Enthusiasm. Enthusiasm must be accomplished with obedience and restraint 
of our desire to express our love for God through a soulish behavior. It might be a nice thing or a fun thing to do, but we need to make sure that we do the right thing. Now, Britt Kadeshaz out of 1 Peter chapter 1. And it says, As people who obey God, this is 14 through 16, do not let yourselves be shaped by the evil desires you used to have when you were still ignorant. On the contrary, following the Holy One who called you, become holy yourselves in your entire way of life, since the Tanakh says, You are to be holy because I am holy. Unquote. Although verse 17 is not included in the Brit Kadesha section for this lesson, it is most applicable. Quote, also, if you are addressing as Father, the one who judges impartially according to each person's actions, you should live out your temporary stay on earth in fear, unquote. If you get nothing else out of this lesson, I hope you get that. Nadav, Avihu, and David were missing this vital ingredient in their behavior towards God in a specific episode in their lives. We are to have a loving fear of God, one of respect and awe that motivates us to obedience out of love and reverence for his sovereignty and authority. That's definitely going against the grain today when secular humanism is being taught to our children, to our grandchildren, and to us if we listen in modern-day churches. The God that's taught in Christianity is not the God of Israel. And if you want to debate that subject, and I'm sure some of you may get upset when you hear this, go to the website, rabdavis.org, Click the link on, on Ask the Rabbi, and we will have a friendly, loving debate about this subject. There is an authority. There is a divinity. It is God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, who will include anyone who follows the commands of God and carries the testimony of Yeshua, that is, repenting and restructuring your life and your behaviors to fit what God has commanded us to do. He provides us instruction and directions for our ultimate benefit. Through our obedience out of love and fear, he will ultimate, he will ultimately be glorified. This is what I alluded to in the first part of this message when I said people who exhibit all of this outlandish behavior are really trying to draw attention to themselves. There is no glory for God in that. God tells us, how he will be glorified. His name will become known among the nations. This is confirmed in 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and temporary residents not to give in to the desires of your old nature, which keep warring against you. Notice it says keep warring against you. We are not saved yet, guys. We are not saved, ladies. When we stand before our God, Yahweh Yeshua, then we'll find out if we're saved. How can we have the hope of assurance that we will be saved if we follow God's commands out of love? It's as simple as that. And the scripture goes on. But to live such good lives among the pagans that even though they now speak against you as evildoers, they will, as a result of seeing your good actions or works, give glory to God on the day of his coming. It says actions. Actions in Hebrew, when you look at this context, means your deeds. Following the commands of God again. How many times does he have to say it? We still don't get it. I pray that his name be glorified in all things. And if you haven't come to this realization that 
loving God, being found a faithful servant, and being included as one of God's people, he will be glorified even more so as more are added to his body of true believers before he returns. Amen.